Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And if you were just joining us, um, let me tell you, this is not our doing. This is not our set. We share this building with the junior theater. And so a couple times a year, we get what we get. And, you know, now our, our basis, we just put him behind that half wall. You know what I mean? So he didn't even comb his hair today. Didn't need to. Just showed up, right? So, uh, but the good news is we are only a few months away from moving into our own building, Lord willing. So, yeah, we are really thankful. The work is moving ahead over at our building at 1811 18th Street. This week, they're beginning to grind the concrete floors in the basement. Um, we've pulled out all the carpet. We've repainted everything. We've got all new lights in, in the basement. And now they're going to grind and polish that uh, basement floor. And so it's going to really brighten things up. It's going to look amazing. We are slowly but surely knocking things out, hoping by August. August 13th right now is our tentative move-in date. Um, we're, or first service. We are really excited about that. So keep praying. We're thankful for you. Um, over, over half a million dollars already pledged to, over the next three years for our capital campaign. Um, God's just really been moving. We're really thankful. So thank you for all you've done and keep praying. And uh, we've got a lot of work ahead of us here. So, but also if you're just joining us, we have been in a study we've been calling Origins for the last three months. We've been studying the first three chapters of the book of Genesis or of the Bible looking at our human origin story. Where'd we come from? Who is God? How did he make us? What are we for? What is our sexuality about? What is our gender about? We've looked at all of these things. And um, next week is our last week in our study before we start the Gospel of John. We're gonna spend over a year studying the Gospel of John. But I wanna give all the parents a little bit of a heads up. Next week, we're specifically looking at topic of sexuality from, from Genesis. So this is your public service announcement, parents, that if you've got young kids who you don't want to have that conversation with quite yet, better send them to Sacred City Kids next week. That's on you. I'll let you guys decide that. But today, we're going to look at the peculiar glory of the normal Christian home. That's where we're going today. The peculiar glory of of the normal Christian home. And we're primarily going to look at this and study it. We're going to build off of Genesis, but we've already seen that a lot. We're going to look at Psalm 127 and Psalm 28 to study that today. In a lot of ways, this sermon is the culmination of everything that we've learned so far in this sermon series. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean to be male and female? What does it mean to be married? All of these different things are going to culminate in this. <clears throat> the Christian home is simultaneously one of the greatest blessings on earth and also one of the greatest threats to Satan's kingdom. The Christian home is meant to be full of godly joy and fruitfulness and life, and it's also meant to be the training ground for snake crushers. It's meant to be the place where dragon slayers 
are raised to go out into their father's world and take dominion until Jesus Christ returns to put all of his enemies under his feet. Now, where do we get this idea of dragon slayers? Well, you have to listen to sermons I've already preached. I ain't got time to go back right now. But what it means is, in the garden, uh, God said that the serpent was going to be cursed and some, daughter, some son of Eve was going to come up and was going to crush the head of the snake. And of course, that was Jesus Christ. He was the snake crusher. He's the one who puts the enemy uh, under his feet. But he also promises to put the enemy under our feet. Right? And so we are, in a sense, raising up future dragon slayers. That's what we're doing. This means that the normal Christian home is the most powerful institution on earth. It's the context where eternal souls are shaped and sent out into the world for good or for evil. Therefore, it should not be any surprise why it has always been and is still currently under such vehement attack in our culture today. Here's the reality. If you want to radically reshape the world, you have to radically reshape the family. So what we are going to do today is we're going to take a long look at the Christian home. Psalm 127 and 128. This, the home is the place where biblical masculinity and biblical femininity come together and create the environment for the blessed life. So let me pray for us. We can get started in our study this morning. <clears throat> Father God, we are in desperate need of more grace from you. We need grace upon grace upon grace. I am just a normal man, and I sin, and I err, and my thoughts go off, and I say stupid things, and Lord, I need you to think through my mind this morning and speak through my vocal cords. I desperately want um, your word to come through me and to pierce the hearts of your people. I pray that their ears would be open, their hearts would be open. Anything just from me, they just reject, but anything from you, Father, they would receive. And that, that seed that they receive in their heart would produce a harvest 30, 60, even 100 full. We pray that you would do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name I pray. <clears throat> Amen. All right, so here we are. In this series, we've already learned a lot of stuff. We learned in the beginning, God, God created us male and female. God designed us male and designed us female and designed marriage. He custom designed marriage. He brought, brings the man before the woman and, or brings the woman before the man and before God and, and they get married and then they, the two become one and, and they create new life. And what happens here is the creation of a family in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, first two chapters, really. Therefore, the family is the oldest institution on earth. I want you to think about that. Many times we forget about this. Before there were nations or states or tribes or schools or churches, there was first the family. God designed human beings to grow up in families and then to build families of our own. That's something in our original design. It's something in our nature. This is part of our origin story. You were made from a family and you were made for a family. But... That's the ideal. That's what happened in creation. But of course, we know in Genesis 3, when Adam failed to lead his wife and they, were, they both sinned against God, ever since that moment, every single human being has been born in sin. And what does that mean? What does that mean? That means we have original sin in us. That means we, it means two things. We came from sinners 
and we came into the world as sinners, right? What could go wrong, right? What could go wrong? Why is family life tough? That's why family life is tough. Your parents were sinners and they gave birth to sinners. That's, that's why family life is so difficult. Now, I start here because I'm talking about the ideal. I'm talking about what God wants for us in creation and what we're going to ultimately get to that Jesus is redeeming us for. But we've all been shaped in profound ways by the sinfulness of our parents. If your parents could have been the best parents in the world, and yet they're still sinners. And so they're still going to have things that rubbed you the wrong way. They're still going to have things that misshaped you, right? They shaped you in a sinful or a broken way. And so anytime... I'm talking about this. There's all kinds of people in this room. People from broken homes, people in broken homes, people from abusive homes, people from alcoholic homes. Sin has shaped the family in all kinds of profound ways. But the temptation for us sometimes is to push away from that and say, since my family life was so broken, I'm just not going to get married or I'm just not going to have kids or I'm just not going to have a family. And that's not what God has for you. Jesus Christ came to redeem you. That means forgive your sins, give you eternal life with him. Yes and amen. But it means more than that. He didn't just come to redeem your soul. He came to redeem marriages. He came to redeem the family. He came to restore what was lost in our fall and in, in all of the sin, the sin that we've affected with our life. So it's important for us as I start talking about this to remember this principle. Here's the principle. Grace restores nature. God created us good. He looked at marriage, family. He said, it is good. We, our first parents fell into sin. But when Jesus Christ came, redemption restores us to what happened before the fall. Do we still sin? Yes. But he's working in us. He's renewing us. And he's promised he's going to make us make all things new. And that includes us where we, one day we won't sin again in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay. So it's important for us to keep this principle in our mind. What it means for our topic today is this. God made us to build Christian homes. Sin has infected us and affected us. And Satan, of course, wants to destroy our homes. But the grace of God has been given to us in Jesus to restore us back to our orig original calling. Jesus didn't just die to redeem our souls. He also died to redeem our homes. That's why in Psalm 127.1, the psalmist says this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who, lay, those who build it labor in vain. We can't build Christian homes without Jesus. But with Jesus, we can. If we're trying to build Christian homes without the gospel, without grace, we're laboring in vain, right? You can't build Christians. You can't build a Christian home. You can't build Christian culture without Jesus. Jesus is the one that changes the human heart and enables us to do this work. So with Jesus, we can build Christian homes. So we're going to look at Psalm chapter 128, 127. And I've got a whole lot of work to do. So please pray that I talk fast and uh, get this done before. Uh, well, we'll see. I'm not going to put any promises out there. <clears throat> so here we are. Uh, Psalm 128. A song of ascents. Now, what does that mean? This means, first off, this is called a wisdom psalm. Now, what is a wisdom psalm? A wisdom psalm is a piece of poetry that the people would memorize. Back in the day, they would memorize it. Often, they would sing it. And what was the purpose of singing it? They knew singing has a way of helping us memorize things and shaping what we love, shaping what we desire. 
So they sang about the good life. Psalm 127 and 128 is the good life from God's perspective, the blessed life from God's perspective. So they would sing this in order to form them and form their children into little worshipers that knew what was up and what was down and what was right and what was left, what was good, what was bad, what was true, what was a lie. All right? So that's what this psalm is all about. It's really about, the again, the glory of a normal Christian home, a God-centered home. So young men and women, I want you to hear that this morning. This psalm shows us, shows you where you are to aim your life. Listen, most of that music that you listen to out in the world, it's trying to aim your heart in a different direction. It's trying to aim you to be fulfilled in something the, something the world has to offer. Money, sex, power, popularity. That's what it's trying to get you to love. And if, they, if it gets you to love that, then you're going to pursue it. This psalm is trying to get you to love God and the normal Christian life. And the normal Christian life, right, is a family life. Now, I know there's a lot of young men who are pushing away from this responsibility and, and, and they're, they're seeking kind of life on their own, but it's, that's not the blessed life. This, what we're going to see today, is the blessed life. The psalm begins with a promise to us. And this is a good promise. We need to hear this. God wants us to be blessed. This is such a good gift. He says this, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Well, let's first off look at this word blessed because we need to study this a little bit. It's used four times in this verse. It's used all through the Bible. Blessing, 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 blessed, 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 blessed. There's a lot of blessing going on here. The, the word in the original Hebrew is ashre, and it means to be happy and highly favored by God. To be blessed means to be living our lives in line with the way God made us. So listen to this. Remember back in creation, God made the fish to swim in the ocean, right? And so the fish is blessed when he's swimming. If you throw him out on the bank, that's not the blessed life. The blessed bird is to do what she was created to do, and that's fly and soar through the air, right? You put the bird in the water, not blessed. Human beings are blessed in very specific ways. We are blessed in a certain context. And this blessing um, is the family. To be blessed then is to enjoy the benefits bestowed on the first humans in the Garden of Eden, and we're all, they're also described for us under the blessings of the covenant in Deuteronomy 28. Now, I'm going to read some of these because I'm going to make some of us really uncomfortable this morning. Because there's a whole lot of blessing language in this. We're going to read this. <clears throat> Here's the, ble- the covenantal blessings for obeying God and being in covenant with Him. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God. Remember, these aren't like dutiful This isn't like earn God's approval. They've already been delivered graciously out of Egyptian slavery. So God's grace came first and then he gives them this blessing. To do all that I commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Wow, there's national implications to this blessing. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Listen to this. These blessings want to chase you down and tackle you. All right, this is... Like, that's what I want to be blessed. I want to be chased down and tackled by some blessings. You know what I mean? Why? Because God is pursuing his people here. He wants to bless them. If you obey the Lord your God. So yes, is obedience required? Absolutely. Blessed shall you be in the city. Well, he wants us to be blessed in the city. And blessed shall you be in the field. Okay, country folks too. Here we go. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb. He wants our children to be blessed. Blessed. 
and the fruit of your ground. That's our careers. That's our harvest. That's what our work. He wants it to be blessed. And the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Your kitchen, your cooking. Some of y'all need some blessing on that, don't you? Ah, oh, yeah. Sorry, all the young families. That's who I'm talking about right now. Just joking. Blessed shall be your basket and kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Listen to this. Whether I'm coming or I'm going, I'm blessed, it says. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. So part of this blessing is to take out our enemies. They shall come against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Awesome. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and all you undertake. Now I could go on and on. First 14 verses is just blessing, blessing, blessing. Everything you're going to, if you love God and keep him first, everything you touch basically is going to be blessed. Yes, you're going to have enemies, but I'm going to drive them out before you. Now, this is, some, this is covenantal promises to bless us when, when we are following God and walking in his ways. Now, that might make you really uncomfortable. And I think it's probably going to make you really, might make you uncomfortable because this idea of blessing has been misunderstood and misapplied and taught improperly by pastors all the time. And so you, we, might have, we might have pushed away from this idea of blessing. See, there's basically two ways we err when we think about blessing and the way God wants us to be blessed, okay? There are those who think, basically there are those who, who push away from this idea of blessing and they think this life is kind of cold and austere. The Christian life is cold and austere. And then there's those who go overboard and they, they get frustrated with any difficulty in their life because they think they are always going to be blessed and highly favored in this life. We don't want to err in either way. See, some people think that the Christian life is meant to be all battle and no blessing until we get to heaven. The only blessing we're going to get is when we get to heaven. For these folks, the Christian life is austere and cold and often serious. Many times their homes are rule-based and real regimented, and there's not a lot of joy and happiness in the home. This is the Christian life that's all bread and no butter. Somebody needs some butter. This is, I love this. When I was reading this book, East of Eden by George Steinbeck, he had this line in there describing a woman like this that has stuck with me forever. And it's this, quote, she had a dour Presbyterian mind and a code of morals that pinned down and beat the brains out of nearly everything that was pleasant to do. <laughs> right? It's the idea that I get really upset with any, when anybody is having a good time anywhere. Right? And many times our homes... Uh, can be shaped by this kind of mentality, right? A lot of rules, very little joy. But then on the other side of the spectrum are the people who believe in what is, has been called the prosperity gospel. All right, the prosperity gospel. These people walk around, oh man, if you ask them how they're doing, blessed and highly favored, brother. Their wife could have died that morning and they're gonna say the same thing. They cannot admit weakness. They cannot admit sinfulness. They cannot admit that they struggle. Just, oh, I'm blessed and highly favored, brother. Right? These people, now they might not say it, but functionally in their life, they are using God to get what they really want, and that is usually money, success, power, good family, whatever it is. So what's actually happening is they're worshiping an idol. They're they're using God to try to get what they really want, the American dream. 
right? So that's called idolatry. The reality is, now here's the reality. Both of these ideas are partially true. The key is to keep them in proper tension. The fact of the matter is that when you give your life to Christ, it does get better most of the time. God moves into your heart. He forgives your sin. He erases your shame. All of the guilt from your past sinful decisions and all the mistakes that you've made, he takes all that shame on himself, takes it to the cross, dies for it, and now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is amazing what God does for us. He gives us a purpose that's bigger than ourselves, one that we probably weren't ever aware of before. He begins reordering our loves and our desires, and he drives sin out from our life. God fills our heart with his unquenchable love, and that really does make everything better. He kind of gives us cross-colored glasses, and anything above death, hell, and the grave is good news, right? right? We can honestly say, when anybody asks us, how are you doing? Better than I deserve. That's how I'm doing. Because anything above that is it's just, just the grace of God, right? So in that sense, we are blessed and highly favored, but it is also true that God calls us to a life of sacrifice and great difficulty. When you give your life to Christ, if you are raised in a Muslim family, then more than likely you are going to get disowned from your family and that's going to come at great cost to you. That's going to be really hard. Many people that are coming to faith and their family was was atheist or agnostic or some other false religion, when their child comes into faith, it really, oftentimes, it costs them their family. That really does cost them something. Jesus tells all Christians that we are to take up our cross daily and follow him. That means there's going to come some sacrifices. That means many days, the blessed life is going to feel like dying. Dying to my sin dying to my desires, dying to myself, dying to my own pride. So it's important that we keep these ideas in tension, right? We've got to keep these ideas in tension as we're going to be talking about the Christian family and what does it look like to be blessed and to have the blessing of God. And here's how I want to do it. I want to kind of give you this, illust this illustration. Earthly blessings that we're going to talk about, wealth, family life, marriage, all of the stuff that comes with it, legacy. Think of that as an appetizer. That's an appetizer, right? Eternal life with God, forgiveness of your sins, that's the entree. Every single Christian who ever puts their faith in Christ, even if they're in communist China, right? Or they're in Iran or they're in Russia or they're in the United States. Every Christian will get the entree. Every Christian will get blessed in eternal life and walk with God. Some Christians, I would say many Christians will also get the appetizer of being blessed in this earthly life, right? Many Christians will get the appetizer. So we're going to look at the appetizer and we're going to look at uh, the entree. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 19, 19. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, so some people are going to miss out on the appetizer, will receive a hundredfold and will re and will inherit eternal life. So those that miss out on the appetizer, they're going to, be, they're going to receive even more in, in, in heaven when they meet God, right? And they're going to receive, of course, eternal life. The Christian home is an appetizer 
And eternal life with God is the entree. So we're going to look at our text this morning. Let's go Psalm 128. Let's get back to that. Here's the one who is blessed. Look, here's the attitude. Step one, you want this blessed life? Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. The psalmist announces that only those who have the right attitude and act in an appropriate manner will be blessed. What is the right attitude? We fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Quite simply, it means we put him first in all things. We consult his word first before we make any other decisions. If fear in your mind thinks like you would run away from God because you're afraid of God in that way, that's not the type of fear. This is a reverent fear, a worshipful fear. This is, if you have a good godly father, when you're a little kid, this is the way that you fear your dad, right? Like it's an awe and a, and a respect. It's an acknowledgement of God's power and of God's centrality. So those who fear the Lord will be humble, not proud, will listen to God's laws and advice. They won't say my way, they'll say God, your way. And they walk in obedience to him. And if you know anything about the wisdom literature, in the wisdom literature, it's often portrayed the way, the, the way a man should go is two paths. There's the way of God, that's the, that's the good path. And there's the way of man or Satan, and the way of destruction. And what the psalmist is saying right away here is, the wise man, the wise man fears the Lord and walks his path, right? So before we get to any of these blessings, that's the prerequisite is I fear God and I choose to live my life in order with his ways, okay? So that's where we are. Now, this is interesting. The psalmist begins to paint a picture. Some of you will love this. I cannot read poetry for the life of me, okay? I read a lot of books. I have a lot of poetry. I've got big stacks of them next to my bedside or next to my, my lazy boy and I pull them out and I force myself to read them and most of the time, I, I, what? I don't get this. I am a logical, rational, like line by line type of guy. I like, I like Paul. I like the apostle Paul. Give me some more, Paul. Just tell it to me, brother. Pictures I'm not good with. The psalmist is about to paint some pictures. I've read this picture many times, didn't really know what he's talking about. And then I started reading some commentary, doing some more study, and things just opened up for me. Here it is. Here's the picture. Here's how the picture begins. You shall eat, so the blessed man shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Okay, cool. This is a good picture. Here's the picture. The man has done what the man was supposed to do. Went out in the world and done what he was supposed to do, he worked hard and through his hard work, the labor of his hands, he has produced a harvest and now he's bringing that harvest home and his whole family gets to enjoy it. They get to eat the food, they get to drink the, the wine, they get to enjoy the good gifts from God and it says, it shall be well with them. So what are we learning here? Right away, men, we learn, just like we've learned in Genesis, it is good to work. Working is good. Working brings its own reward in some sense. Now, this might make me weird. I don't think it makes me weird. I just think it makes me biblical, okay? I actually like to mow, okay? I like to mow. I actually don't mind snow blowing either. Why? Because I step out into a world of chaos. I step out into grass everywhere and weeds and all kind of stuff when I get to. My son does it most of the time now, okay? I'm trying to raise him to do the right thing. And I step into chaos, and guess what? I take dominion of that grass, and I leave with lines. Oh, 
perfectly, you know, dark line, light line, dark line, light line. And I say, look what I have done. Let the neighbors come. Let the neighbors see. Right? I go in. Mabe, did you see the grass? Did you see the, it was 16 inches of snow. Did you see the concrete? Yeah, I did that. I did that. Right? There's something rewarding in doing good work. There's something rewarding in producing, building, creating, organizing, structuring, engineering. It's meant to bring its own reward. And then it also brings, on top of its own reward of having fulfilling work, it also is meant to bring financial blessing or material blessing. That's a normal thing that God built, a way that God built the world. It's an aspect of the blessed life. It is a good thing to men to provide for our families and to eat the fruit of our labor. But oftentimes, here it is. Now listen, men, men and women sin in distinct ways. Often they sin in the grain with way, of their nature, the way God made them. And oftentimes sin, we're either prone to laziness. We don't want to get out of the lazy boy and go mow the grass because it's hot out there and there's bugs and I'm enjoying this TV show, right? Or... We also can sin by taking a good thing that God's given us, work, and turning it into an idol. What does that mean? Well, when you take a good thing like work and it becomes a God thing, like workaholism, that makes it a bad thing. We see this in Psalm 127, verses 1 through 2. Look at Psalm 127 with me. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor... Those, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now look, it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he, God, gives to his beloved sleep. Here's what he's saying. When God is placed first, when God is building the home, when man fears God, when we fear God more than anything else, work is a blessing. But when work becomes an idol, it becomes a slave master that will wake us up early, keep us up late, and feed us with anxiety. Do you see that? So here's what happened. Here's what happens. When we're working or when we're worshiping our work, it wakes us up early. We got to get out of the house to make a dollar, right? Or maybe we worship getting stuff. And so we've went out and we've spent so much money and we're in so much debt. Now the slave master of work wakes us up early and you better get out there and you better make a living because the, the debt, you know, the debt collector's coming for you. And what does that do? It makes us get up early. It makes us stay late. And it wakes us up in the middle of the night with ulcers and all kinds of negative thoughts, doesn't it? It feeds our anxiety, but when you worship God, listen, he blesses your work. Work is in its proper place. Let's just say you work 8, 10, 12 hours a day, and then you get to sleep 6, 7, 8 hours a night, and that is a gift from a good God. I'll tell you, I did not make myself, all right? If I would have made myself, I wouldn't need sleep. I like productivity. I like to get stuff done, right? I often think, you know how much work I could get done if I didn't have to sleep? If I was the one person on earth, everybody else is sleeping, and I could go out there and keep working all night long. But guess what? That's not why God made us. God made us in a rhythm of work and rest. So we, have, we work half the day, let's just say, and we sleep a good portion of our lives. He tells us to work six days, rest a day on, on the seventh. God is gracious to us in that. He's not like Pharaoh that made the, his people work, 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 work. No, God says work and rest. So when work 
is in its proper place under God, it's a blessing and not a curse. All right, we're going to go to verse 3 because I got a lot to go. Verse 3, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Here's what I'm saying, guys. I read this and I'm like, my wife's a vine. Get nothing out of that. I have no idea what that means, right? I am just a wooden, I am just a blockhead when it comes to this kind of stuff, right? But, but listen, once I remember what Rob taught last week, and Rob, we taught on masculinity two weeks ago and femininity last week, and that was one of, that was the best sermon on femininity I have ever heard. And what Rob took from Genesis, it says Eve was the mother of all living, was that the essence of femininity is life-giving, is life-giving. Now, I want you to think about this. Here, the psalmist paints a picture for us. A Christian wife is like a fruitful vine in the home. Now, that should bring up all kinds of ideas. If you are steeped in the Bible, you should know that when you think of vine, one of the vines that you see all throughout the scripture is the grapevine, right? And the grapevine produces grapes, of course, but one of the uses throughout scripture is to make wine with the grapevine or with, with the grapes. And here's what the Bible says about wine and why God gave us, think about this, God gave us the, the grapevine and God gave us grapes and God gave us the ability to make wine. Now, look what he says here. Why would he do that? Psalm 104, 15, quote, you cause the grass to grow, speaking of God, for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth fruit from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil, olive oil, to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So here's the idea. God gave us one, or God gave us grapevines to produce grapes, to produce wine, and he did that for this express purpose to gladden the heart of man. That's what God says. Not only his heart, not only our heart, this is, you're not gonna like this, some of you, it gladdens God's heart as well. Judges 9.13 says this, but the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? The wine that does what? Cheers God and men. Here's the idea. Wine is given to us by God and it's meant to be received as a blessing for, from God and used in moderation. Used in moderation. Drunkenness, of course, is a sin, but it's meant to bring joy to our life. Now, why, do I, why am I bringing this up? Just, what does he say? A godly wife is a fruitful vine in her home. So a godly wife is meant to be a life giver and a bringer of joy into the home. She's to nurture those within her home. As wine cheers the heart of God and man, so a godly wife cheers those in the home through her nurture and care. Now, this is also why the Proverbs condemn the woman who tears down her home. She says, the, the psalmist says, the foolish woman tears down her home. How? Through gossip, through slander, through not honoring her husband, not submitting to her husband, rebellion, all kinds of different ways. So the woman is meant to be a life giver, bringing life and joy into the home and, the, and condemned when she sins in her ways of dishonoring the husband and tearing down her home. 
Now, another aspect of a vine that we should not miss is that a vine actually needs structure to maximize its fruitfulness. See, a grapevine, or a grapevine needs a trellis so its fruit doesn't get trampled on the ground. If you go out in the field and you just plant a grapevine and you walk away, it's going to spread out like this and it's going to produce a lot of fruit, but then animals can come and eat it and animals can come and trample on it. So what do we do? If you go by a winery, you see a winery, there's a lot of these fences built up and they plant the grapevine and the grapevine grows up and weaves in and out of that structure and that structure allows it to produce maximum fruit and that fruit not get spoiled on the ground. Well, that's exactly what this psalm is telling us here, but we miss it in modern translations. It's easier seen in the King James Version or in the Geneva Bible. I'm gonna read it from the Geneva Bible so you get the sense here. Quote, thy wife shall be as the fruitful vine on the sides of thine house. On the, here's the idea. You have a house, you plant a vine next to the house, whatever it is, those, you know, those vines have like Spider-Man capabilities, right? They grow up and they attach to the house and they will grow up as tall as that house is. God, God is saying, I've made men to be the wall here and women to, or men to be the structure and women to grow up that wall. See, I knew I was custom designed to drive my wife up a wall. I knew it. That's why I'm so good at it. God made me this way. Right? So here's the idea. The godly man has went out and, and, and made some money. He's came in, he's built a home, he's provided a home. What it's a home for? To, for the family to be protected in protected from the elements, protected from enemies. He's built the structure and in comes the wife as the godly vine. And what does she do? She brings life into the home, right? Literally, my wife. I've never, I, I would never own a plant. I'm gonna tell you this. And I own like 40, okay? I own 40, why? Because my wife loves to bring these little things into our home, right? Literally bringing life into our home. Now, what she's to do, she's to use the structure of the husband, the, the structure the husband provides to maximize fruitfulness in the home. She is his helper and he is her support. The godly husband here is to provide the structure for life-giving growth that happens in the home. Now, what does that look like practically? Well, a godly husband is meant to give direction, Right? Men are good at giving directions. Well, we're not good at taking directions all the time, but we're good at giving directions. The godly husband is meant to impose rules. We don't do that here. The godly husband is meant to use discipline. Do they, now, what, does the wife do some of these things too? Yes, but he's uniquely gifted to provide these things. The wife, she might be tempted to count to three. One, two, the dad says, I said now, Right? He sets limits. No, you can't do that. No, you can't go there. No, you can't play that sport. No, we're not going to do that here. He is meant to establish and follow through with consequences. What does that mean? Here's what it means in my family. If, if, there's, if ever, I'm ever not home, right, and, and little kids get, get in trouble and there's going to be some discipline that's needed, one of the things that they, they usually say, they say something like, or first off, my wife can say something like this. Wait till your dad gets home right? 
and, and they know exactly what that means. No, 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 no. I want discipline now. I know, I'll take it now. Take the spanking now. I'll take it now. Right? And what are they saying? They, they know, you know, their mom, right? Their mom, whatever, five, 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 two or whatever my wife, I don't even, I don't know, sorry. Five, two, five, three, whatever she, my wife is. Behind her is me, right? And they know, who, they know who brings the discipline that, you know, stings a little more, right? They know that. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Behind every wife is supposed to be a godly husband. So when she says, clean your room, she, they don't just hear her saying that. They hear dad, who's at work, saying it as well. The husband is meant to hold the children accountable for their behavior and God, godly husbands teach them the Bible, teach them Christian values. That's what husbands are for. Now, I'm saying all this and I know that there are people in here in a broken home, in broken relationships, from broken home, and that brings all kinds of wounds and I, I'm sorry for that. Jesus can redeem, Jesus can restore, but there's something, and I'm not gonna blow us away with all these statistics. I'm just going to say one thing. If you want, you can look it up. The majority of people in the penitentiary came from fatherless homes. Every statistic from poverty, criminality, every negative statistic, you trace it back and it comes down to fatherlessness. If you're raised in a fatherless home, you are three times more likely to be arrested by the time you're 30. Okay? That's scary for a lot of us. I, I get it. But it also shows us the power of a husband, the power of a godly Christian husband. Listen, here's, a, here's an interesting study that I read this week from Harvard. They did a study on single, we always hear, oh yeah, single parent homes, you know, it's difficult, it's difficult, it's difficult. If you come from a home that, that doesn't have a father present, the, the, all, the, all the numbers are really scary. But they also studied for the first time in history, Single parent homes when it's just the father there. And the single parent home when it's just the father show no statistical difference between a, a husband and a father, a, an intact family. Why? Because a ma the man is made to give the structure that a child needs to grow up and not be a criminal. To grow up and to know what's right and what's wrong, what's up and what's down. The man is meant to, meant to do that in the home. Now, God's ideal is for a Christian Husband and a Christian wife. That's the ideal. And that's what we're, we want to work for. That's what we want to build. That's what we want to ask God to give us here in this church. Now, I am running late. Okay, sorry. I got to keep going. Of course, another aspect of this wife as a fruitful vine is producing children, right? That's part of her fruit that she produces. 128.3b says this, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Now, this needs to be said because we live in a culture of death that doesn't value children the way we should. Psalm 127, 3 through 5 says this. Behold, children are an, a heritage from the Lord, an inheritance. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. What does this mean? Children are inheritance from the Lord. What is an inheritance? An inheritance is a gift from our heavenly father that is meant to bless us and to maximize our effectiveness on this earth. I want you to hear those two things. Children are a blessing in themselves. They are fun. They are enjoyable. We've got my niece's nephew staying the night with us this weekend and we got to watch our two-year-olds trying to talk with one another at dinner. It was hilarious. 
right? One of them, they looked, it was like 90 year old. It was like a 90 year old couple is what it looked like. <laughs> she didn't eat all her meat. She just looks at him. She's like, bye-bye. Like, I'm like, I think I've seen this play out in restaurants before. This, I've seen this scene before. It's hilarious. Children are a blessing in themselves. They are enjoyable. They're a blessing in the home, but they're not just a blessing. They're also meant to be inheritance that maximizes our effectiveness in the world. We see this in the Psalm in two places, in verse four and two. He says this, children are, the, are arrows in the hand of a warrior. Fathers, you are meant to be a warrior here. And your children are meant to be arrows. That means you are meant to raise them so they fly straight and they're very dangerous to, to Satan's kingdom, right? And they're meant to be arrows in the hand of a warrior. And he says, blessed, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Two things we see. One, our children are meant to be offensive weapons for God's kingdom advancing in our world. They're meant to know what truth is. They're meant to know what a lie is. They're meant to know what the gospel is. They're meant to know up and down, right and left. They're meant to know that and be shot out into the world to further God's kingdom. And also it says, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. That means it is good. It is a good thing to have a lot of children. All right. It is a good thing to have a lot of children. Now listen, here's the idea. When you go out in battle, like how many arrows do you want when you go out into battle? You gonna bring two out there? Right? No, here's the idea. And anybody out there that knows that tries to prepare themselves and maybe they conceal carry, the whole idea of concealing carry is how many bullets can I have, right? Because if bad guys come in, the only thing better than bullets is more bullets, okay? That's what's better. The psalmist is saying, your children are bullets. Your children are arrows meant to be sent out in the world. And blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, how? How does this psalm end? This is interesting. He says this, this man who has this blessed life shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. Here's the idea. Again, another picture. We are to raise kids that grow up in the Lord that honor their father and mother. In this scene, that means when dad has to go out into the city and meet some of their enemies, the grown-up kids have his back. Hear this. This father is what we would call a patriarch. He's got a little godly platoon with him. When he goes out to meet his enemies, the adult more than likely, the adult boys go with them and they have his back. This is the idea. We also see this idea in Psalm 128, verse 3b. He kind of, the psalmist switches metaphors here and goes to the olive trees and he talks about your, your kids being shoots around your table. Here's the idea. When a mature olive tree grows up, right, it, draw, it begins dropping olives. Those olives have seeds in them. Those seeds drop into the ground and then grow up and become shoots. And here's what's interesting about the olive tree. Those shoots go up and start wrapping around the original tree, the original olive tree. And they begin growing up on, on top of and around and through the original olive tree. This is why P Paul uses that analogy that Israel was grafted out of the olive tree and then you as Gentiles have been grafted into the olive tree. It's a very unique tree. But the idea is that as we have children, like we, 
we drop seeds and we have children, our children start growing up around our table. They start to grow up around us and actually start to support us and support our mission and God's mission in some way. What does that mean? After we're dead and gone, they continue the family mission. The original tree dies, but there, those shoots have wrapped around it and continue the mission of God. This is the blessing of a godly legacy. The Christian home is meant to be multi-generational. It's meant to go on into the future and continue to produce fruit for God's kingdom. That's why in verse 6, he says, this is a part of the blessed life. May, your chi- may you see your children's children. May you grow up and be a grandpa. That's a good thing. God's covenantal blessings are meant to go on into the future for a thousand generations. Verse 4 says again, Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. As I close here, last verse, verse 5 says this. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Now see, this is, Psalms sometimes are so hard to read for linear thinkers. Why does he switch metaphors so much? Why does the psalmist switch from talking about the family to talking about the city of Jerusalem? Well, think about it. How does a city flourish? The blessed life isn't just a blessing for my family. The blessing, the, the, Deuteronomy said, you'll be blessed in the city. He wants, there's not just a familial blessing, there's also a city-wide blessing. Well, how does the city bless? How does this, the city truly flourish and prosper? Well, there has only ever been one way, and that is through families like this, Psalm 128 types families multiplying. We might need to change our thinking of the city. The city is not like a big sack of marbles. And all those marbles are just individual people that make up the city. And the idea is to arrange the marbles in such a way that it creates a flourishing city. You can't do that. That's what the world tries to do through Marxism and socialism and all kinds of different things. We are not marbles. The analogy, it, the analogy would, would transfer like this. We are less like a sack of marbles and a whole lot more like an orchard full of fruit trees. Literally, our family trees. We are a What is a city? A city is an orchard full of family fruit trees. And the reality is, if those families are Christian, the city will be blessed. The city will flourish. If those families are broken, if those families are worldly, if those families are not Christian, then it won't be blessed. Right? This is why we spend so much time talking about the importance of the Christian home. We don't just want, see, we're not just selfish people. Oh, I just want a little happy Christian home. No. We also want to see our, process, our city prosper and be blessed by God. We want human beings to flourish. And human beings flourish as a unit in a family, a healthy family. So if we really want to renew the city, one of the best ways that we can do that is continually to renew the family. That Jesus died not just for souls, but also to redeem the family. Now, Last thing I'll say is this. I was reading some commentaries on this by the famous 19th century English preacher, Charles Spurgeon. And this is what he said, man. He said this. This verse, on this verse, he says, the truly blessed man, quote, shall have a patriot's joy as well as a patriarch's peace. 
God shall give him to see his country prosper and its metropolitan city flourish. Here's the idea. As families are Christian and they flourish and they function the way God's called them, God at the center of all things, right? And walking in his ways, they begin to multiply. You're going to get churches planted, right? You're going to have church full of godly Christian families. The more churches get planted, the more families to spread through the city, the better a city will flourish. This is God's idea of how to renew the world. It's not through individuals, it's through the family. This is what God's calling us to do. We're here to make disciples. We're here to build families. We're here to plant churches. We're here to renew the city. This is what Jesus wants to do in us and through us in the Quad Cities. Let me pray for us. God, unless you build the house, all those who labor in it labor in vain. We do not have any confidence in our own ability to build Christian families. We lean solely on the work of Jesus Christ who lived for us, who died for us, who rose again for us, who ascended into heaven for us and he's ruling and reigning in heaven for us now and one day he will come and he will renew and restore all of us to live forever with him. We look forward to that day and we wanna work for that day by building Christian families. Would you bless our work? As we come to the Lord's table this morning, uh, we see another way that you've redeemed the vine. That the vine that produced the grapes, that produces the wine, on the night that you were betrayed, you took that bread and that cup and you said, this is my body that was broken for you. This is my blood that was shed for you. The cup of the new covenant. God, we are your covenant people and we want to eat this meal that you've given us. We ask that you to minister to us, be present with it, be present here with us, lead us to repentance and help us leave this room today um, ready to serve you in our homes in any way that you call us to. I pray that you would do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.